Boy, every week it gets easier to lose my voice before I come up here. Thank you, worship team. Well, my name is Thomas Hoke. I am one of your pastors, and uh, today it's my pleasure to reconvene our series. Uh, In the wake of the resurrection, Easter Sunday, we're thinking about what does that mean? What is the significance for us today? Uh, And today we want to talk about the resurrection and suffering. If you have your Bible, which we always recommend, we have a saying, bring your Bible to church. You can open it or click it open or however you might do that. And we'll be in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 15. Certain moments in life have the power to shift our core sense of being. The coronavirus pandemic and all it has wrought is such a moment. Everyone seems to have a a personal before and after. People have found themselves close to life's deepest questions, those forced by an apocalypse. Questions about how we live, how we suffer, and how we make meaning of our short time here on earth. Who am I? Who are we? Who are we becoming? How have we been transformed? Transformation was forced on some, for others it was chosen. And the process of reflection is just beginning. Where it takes us remains to be seen. But the clarity that comes with intense suffering often clouds as time moves on. We have a window now to look at our lives anew. Compelling prose. I can say that because I didn't write it. Um, This was uh, a special section in New York Times last Sunday uh, that I was reading. And uh, you might hear that and say, well, that... I don't think that speaks for me, but it speaks for your neighbors, and it speaks for our community. These are the kinds of questions that are being asked. Who am I? What has happened? How, how do we find meaning in an event that seems to have robbed us of meaning? And that's what suffering seems to do, robs us of meaning. Today, I want to do two things. First of all, I want everyone here to hear an account for Christian suffering, a a Christian account of suffering. What is it? uh, And how do we endure it? So whether you're here and you believe in Christ, you've trusted him or not, I want you to hear what what it sounds like and what it means for a Christian to suffer. I won't give all the, everything that could be said. But secondly, for those especially here who have their hopes set in Jesus, I want to give you some simple ideas about how to start a conversation like this. If these are the kinds of questions that your neighbors and friends are asking, we need to give them the Bible's answers to those questions. So let me read 2 Corinthians 4, and, and you'll see where we're going here right away. It says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Today we'll ask and answer two questions about suffering, two very simple questions about suffering from 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 15. What is suffering? How do we endure suffering? I want you to hear the Christian account and I also want you to be prepared uh, to ask and answer these questions with your friends and neighbors. First, let's pray. It's only with the Lord's help that we'll do this. Heavenly Father, we come to you a people with bruises and cuts and scars, emotional, physical, and other. You see them all. You are here among us receiving our worship. You have heard our singing. And now you want to speak a word to us, I hope, through your word. Give us ears to hear, to understand the way that you understand suffering. And most of all, help us to see Jesus more clearly. Do all this, we pray, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, first of all, our first question. What is suffering? What does this passage tell us about suffering? If someone were to ask you that question, what do you think you would say? What is suffering? Why do we suffer? What would you say if your neighbor came over today, you're doing some yard work out there, you're mowing your lawn, it's going to be a beautiful day, and they came over and said, I'm struggling. What, what do you understand by suffering? Why, why do we suffer like we do? What would, what would you say? Maybe if you wanted to spark the conversation instead, you might go across the lawn, you see them, they're doing their thing with their rake or whatever they're doing today, and you, you ask them, hey, what's gotten you through this year? How have you made it this far? I'm, I've struggled too. What's, what's your secret? How have, you, how have you done it? As the article said that I read just a moment ago, this moment has caused us and our neighbors to ask these big questions. Who are we? Why do we suffer? How do we endure it? Is there any meaning in it or is it just senseless? Uh, most of the time, we're not forced to answer these questions or even think about them. We can sort of glide on in, in prosperity and not have to answer them. But moments like this, and I don't know where you are today, maybe you're here today and you are in immense suffering that really has nothing to do with the pandemic but is just come upon you. I don't know where you are today. But this is significant because every one of us has answers to those questions. It's not as if some of us came in here and we just don't, don't think about that. Um, everyone practically has answers to these questions. It's sort of like if I ask you, you know, are you on a diet or something? You might say, well, yeah, I'm on the seafood diet. You know, I see food and I eat it, right? You, you have a diet, you know, uh, it might be a bad one, uh, might be a good one, um, but everyone has one. Your answers to these foundational questions will determine whether you'll be able to endure suffering. Uh, just the other week, my, my next door neighbors, um, they started having a retaining wall built in their backyard, and it looks really nice. And I noticed, sort of I'm peeking over, you know, being a good nosy neighbor, peeking over the fence, and I'm sort of looking at them building it. And what I noticed is, you know, they set the first line of the bricks there. They got everything, they packed it down, and they had the machines and all that kind of stuff. And they have their levels and their plumb bobs and all of these, you know, little tools that they're going to use to make sure that first line is incredibly even, at the exact right pitch, plumb, square, level, all the construction words. But then, they get to the next line, they move a little quicker. Get to the next line, move a little quicker. 
that first line, if it's set correctly, will, will set the whole thing correct. And when the storm comes, that wall will stand, right? All of us have answers to these questions. Will they keep us upright in the storm? Now, the Bible's answers to these questions have weathered thousands of years. Uh, not because necessarily because they give us every answer to every situation and every question that we might have, but because the answers that they have given have proven to align with reality. Let's jump in. First thing that we see, first answer to our question, what is suffering? We see in verses 8 and 9. I'll, I'll read them again because it's short here. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are afflicted in every way. First, the Bible affirms that suffering is real. Suffering is real. And not just pandemics and wars and oppression and all those things. God sees every paper cut, every harsh word that was spoken to you this week, every stolen toy, kids, every shady business deal that put you on the wrong end and wrong-footed, every estranged relationship that you're enduring month in and month out, every holiday having to visit. And God labels it like this. Affliction. You're afflicted. He does not minimize it. He does not, that is, God is not up in the heavens looking down at us today. People who would identify ourselves in, as sufferers today, in, in whatever degree that might be, even the smallest degree, he doesn't look down at us, shake his head and say, don't you know what's going on in India? Buck up. No. In fact, that's one of the primary ways that we try to handle suffering, manage suffering, keep it from really overwhelming us, is by downplaying it. It's like our cholesterol, you know, we sort of, every once in a while we'll sort of, oh, just keep it down, just do, make a little change and try to keep it from, from really overwhelming us. We, or we sort of, we, we deal with it kind of psychologically by, by telling ourselves that, that the things that we've lost don't really matter that much to us. We didn't really care that much about them. Uh, or we, we, we sort of chastise ourselves and say, I never really should have cared about that in the first place. It's my fault. I should have, I should have lowered my expectations. Or, or we, we build a thick, concrete wall around our hearts uh, and the parts of our hearts that care about the things that we lost so that we can make sure that we're never damaged again. But that's not how God sees things. There is a number in the mind of God right now as he sits watching us. It is the number of tears that you have shed. He has kept count. He has watched each one. He knows. He is not flippant with your suffering. He does not scoff at it. He has entered into it. More on that in a minute. So first, suffering is real. Second, the Bible says that suffering is confusing. Or as to use Paul, the Apostle Paul's word here, who wrote this, uh, he says we're perplexed in every way. We're perplexed but not driven to despair. Perplexed. You know, sometimes we suffer because we've made a boneheaded decision. We've done something that was really, really not smart. We sinned. We were harsh to a friend, and now they're giving us the cold shoulder. And we can't help but feel like, oh, I got what I deserved in that circumstance. Uh, the Bible, by the way, doesn't dismiss that kind of suffering either. We'll get to that. I remember when I was in shop class in middle school, uh, just a very impulsive little guy. <laughs> Maybe you can imagine with the energy that I have right now. Um, and I was using one of the drum sanders, and I got out a wrench. I was trying to fix, you know, replace the little sanding thing. I don't even think I was supposed to be doing that in the first place. Um, 
as I say it, I realized I almost certainly wasn't. So I was breaking the rules to begin with, and then I got so frustrated, I took the wrench and I couldn't get it off, and I thought, I'm just going to turn the machine on, <laughs> with the wrench still attached to the thing that's about to spin 8,000 RPM. Guess what happened? It hurt. <laughs> really bad. <laughs> the, the wrench flew off, it hit me in the stomach, I lost my breath. The shop teacher said, what happened? I, I think I lied to him, I made something up, I didn't want to get in trouble. It, it wasn't hard to draw a straight line from my decision to my consequence, <laughs> my suffering. But other times, we suffer for seemingly no reason at all. When, when there's no straight line between our bad decision and our pain, and so we're perplexed we are confused, we're bewildered, we're puzzled. Where is, this, where is this coming from? I didn't ask for this. Why? Why did this happen? Where did this come from? Uh, there are times when we encounter suffering that, that feels almost pointless, almost totally pointless. I have to tell you, of, of all this, my whole sermon today, this is the part that has been the most comfort to me as I prepared. God has anticipated our frustration with the fact that suffering will not always be, the, the point of suffering will not be evident to us in many circumstances. God has given us permission to feel very confused. Can't you resonate with that? I mean, you can say to your unbelieving neighbor this week, man, this just isn't the way things ought to be, is it? I'm, fr I'm frustrated. Aren't you? What do you think? You have permission to be perplexed, but not driven to despair. We need to be a church like that. We need to be a, a, a milling around after the service sort of church and out in the lobby and in every day of the week sort of church where you feel safe to come into church and everyone knows that you've been suffering and you don't have to worry about someone coming up to you and saying, but where's the silver lining? What's God teaching you? Ugh. I'm perplexed. I'm perplexed. You don't have to give an account for your sadness or figure out what, what God, what's the lesson in all this. What, what's God doing with it? It's okay to be perplexed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Perplexed. Suffering is often perplexing, confusing. Suffering is real. Suffering is confusing. Third, the Bible says that persecution and suffering are often linked. We see that in the, the third thing he says here in verse 8. Sorry, in verse 9. Persecuted but not forsaken. What is a persecutor? A persecutor is an enemy. Uh, later, the Apostle Paul will go on to, to categories. He will actually categorize. Let me try again. He will categorize all suffering under the label of death. You notice that there in, in verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Suffering is, is death in a certain sense. It's a shadow of death. After all, if suffering is the loss of meaning and purpose and, and relationship, if, if that's the case, what's the greatest loss of meaning and purpose and relationship? It's death, isn't it? It's the end, so to speak, maybe, uh, according to one understanding. What is suffering but the shadow of death, the, the, the coming of death, chasing us down, stealing things that we love as we go? Death, however, is not a natural inhabitant of God's good world. Death doesn't belong. Death broke in. Suffering doesn't belong. And by the way, uh, this is a fact that if you're here and you, you feel like I have a really thoroughgoing secular view of the world, 
uh, you know, basically kind of the way that I understand the world is, is based only on, without any account for the supernatural, nothing outside of what can be explained uh, by my own mind. This fact, the fact that suffering doesn't belong, is one that doesn't fit into that view. The Bible, however, affirms that we shouldn't suffer. <laughs> There's a certain sense of which suffering, it's part of the story, but it's not part of the story that will be there forever, and it's not a part of the story that really belongs. It's an intruder. It's broken in through the gate, and one day it'll be thrown out. Suffering, we always understand our suffering as part of a bigger story. And the Bible story is this, that, that God created a good world. He, said all, he, he looked at all that he created and said, it is good. A world without suffering. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God and brought suffering into the world and into our very own hearts. A participation in the suffering. Isn't that some of the most painful suffering of all is when we realize that we have caused suffering, that we're part of the problem? We have this tendency in our hearts to distrust and disobey the Creator, the one who has made us, who, who has made a world without suffering that we have brought into. And in fact, this is, this is sort of the biggest problem of all. How can God end evil and suffering without ending us? How can God end death without ending us? God has made a way. More on that later. Fourth and lastly on this point, um, so suffering is real, suffering uh, is confusing, suffering is, uh, uh, suffering and persecution are linked, and finally, the Bible actually says that suffering is an opportunity. It's an opportunity. You know, sometimes, um, as, as the article I read said, said, for some, facing trauma feels too hard, and others have found unexpected resilience and courage, rage, or stillness transformation was forced on some, and for others it was chosen. Everyone seems to recognize that in the midst of suffering, there's an opportunity. Suffering forces us to a fork in the road. We will become one thing or another thing. We will, we will grow resilient and sort of be beautified by suffering. It will do something good to us, or it will do something horrible to us. What does it look like? I, I think, you know, and I've focused on the first part of each of these little pairs, persecuted, afflicted, perplexed, but there's more, right? He says, you can be afflicted, but not crushed. Afflicted, but not crushed. Do you know someone who's gone through suffering, who has been afflicted, but they haven't been crushed by it? For whom suffering actually serves sort of a strengthening effect in their life by going through it? I bet you do. I bet you look up to that person. And don't, don't you similarly know someone who, who suffered and was just utterly crushed by it? Who, who built the armor around their hearts so thick to make sure they would never be hurt again? Suffering forces us to a fork in the road. Don't you know someone who has suffered and been so vexed by it, so confused by it, so undone by it, they, they lose all sense of meaning, all sense of purpose, and they, they almost sort of turn to a shell of their former self. On the other hand, you know someone who's gone through the mysterious path of suffering. They have been perplexed and they've come out of the other end somehow more confident, more resilient, stronger. How, how did they do that? The fact is that in each of these pairs, the Apostle Paul is outlining what happens when you enter into suffering. If you enter suffering afflicted and if you do nothing with it, if you don't maintain your soul, persecution will turn into feeling forsaken. Affliction will turn you, will, will make you feel crushed. 
perplexment will make you despair, even of life itself. To be struck down will make you feel completely destroyed. Suffering is a fork in the road. It forces our hand. How, do we, how can we be afflicted by suffering without end up crushed? How can, we be, how can we let it really have its good work on us without it taking us all the way that it would go otherwise? How can we be afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not abandoned? How can we be struck down but not destroyed? That is to say, if your friend or neighbor were to come to you and ask you, how did you make it through this year? Where do you get strength from? How, how have you dealt with this? How have you made it? What would you say? Well, that's what suffering is. How do we endure it? What, what would the, be the answer? I want to put an answer in your mind and in your mouth now to go with you. Paul summarizes the Christian way to deal with suffering in verse 10. He says this, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be, also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. Death is at work in us. But life in you. What does it mean to carry in the body the death of Jesus? Is that just morbid? Is that just sort of a stoic, sort of, I'll take it, I'll carry death in my body, it's fine, I'm not bothered by it? No. What does it mean to carry in the body the death of Jesus? By the way, stick that question in your back pocket and think about it for the next week because it's worth pondering. It means a lot, and I'm only going to say a couple things. But first of all, at the highest level, what does it mean to carry in the body the death of Jesus, to endure suffering in this way? First of all, it means let suffering work on you. Let death touch you. Let it hurt you. Let it change you. Let suffering afflict you. Let it perplex you. Let it strike you. Do not harden your heart, but soften your heart to it. When your brother or sister or spouse or friend or roommate says a harsh word to you, let it hurt. Don't disqualify it by saying, I didn't care about them anyway. Don't disqualify it. Let it hurt. Let it hurt. Don't protect yourself by reflecting their anger back at them. And then do the brave thing again by going to them and saying, I feel hurt by what you said. That takes bravery. It takes courage to tell someone that you've been hurt by them because it gives them power, doesn't it? it? It's saying to them, you can hurt me, and you did. To go to them in humility and say, I've been hurt. And then, forgive them. <laughs> really forgive them. As in, I've, I've practically forgotten it, forgiven them. If you do these things, if you're doing it right, each of those actions will feel like death. Doesn't it? Hasn't that been your experience? To really forgive, to really let someone hurt you, to really live in this world in the way that God has laid out, in the way that we know in our hearts makes sense, it hurts. And God doesn't disqualify it. He says it's death. It's a shadow of death. Don't resist it. Let it work on you. Carry it. Carry that. And if you do so, the actual life of the Son of God, resurrected, sitting in the heavens, will be manifested through you. Now, how do you do that? I left you hanging. How do you do that? How do you become a person who can do that? What I'm telling you is, is give up your life. 
Don't worry about it. You can hand it over. You can, you can live that way. You can be that bold. You can be that risky. Doesn't that sound risky? Doesn't, isn't that scary? It's scary. We have to give ourselves over to it. Give our, to really let suffering touch us is the scariest thing in the world. But if you ever need assurance that God will not forget you, will not abandon you, if, you re- if I really push my chips all in on Jesus and give my life over to him, if I let myself die in this way, not only in this way, but by really giving myself to him, how can I have confidence, how can I have evidence that he will not leave me in my death, but will raise me again, will give me new life, that, that the life of Christ will be manifested through me, that I, he will nourish me in my death, he will bring me through death into something better. Look back at those four descriptions of suffering. Afflicted but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. In Jesus' life on earth, he encountered plenty of normal, workaday human suffering. God himself came to earth and didn't keep himself from pain. He didn't disqualify. He didn't turn his back on. He, he absorbed all of those things. And on the cross, Jesus did not die a normal human death. Something special was happening. On the cross, Jesus experienced every micron, every gram, every pound of human agony possible, not only to heal our suffering, but to forgive our sins, the ways that we have been complicit in suffering. Why did he do that? So that you, this week, and maybe even in the challenge that I'm giving you, to go to your friends and neighbors who are asking these questions so that you can embrace affliction without being crushed because on the cross, Jesus was not just afflicted, he was crushed for you. You can embrace perplexment without despair because on the cross, Jesus was not just perplexed, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned for you. So that in the midst of your perplexment, he will never abandon you. You can embrace persecution without being feeling abandoned. He despaired of life itself so that you never have to. You can embrace every blow, every pain, every little mini death that the world sends your way, that God sends your way, because it can never really destroy you. Because on the cross, Jesus' body was destroyed for you. And it gets better. Verse 14 says this. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. God will not leave us because God did not leave Jesus. He raised him again. And this is what he will do also. If we are united with him in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like this. Now the message is not go forth, suffer enough that God will notice and resurrect you. No, the message is come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Give yourself to him. In in Jesus, God has made a great exchange. He offers to trade your sin, your past, the things you did this week that you don't want anyone to know about, and he will give you his perfection. And he will trade his future, his glorious future that he is enjoying now, and, and we who belong to Jesus will one day enjoy. He will trade our miserable future for his glorious future. Not just way off in the future, but here and now. A life, lifetime of new life, culminating in the world's greatest homecoming. When you trust Jesus, God looks at you. If we're united to Jesus, God looks at you like he looks at Jesus. 
How does the Father look at Jesus the Son? The perfect Son who never did anything wrong. How does the Father? That's how he looks at you. That is the look on God's face when he thinks about one of his children who is united to Jesus. So give him your suffering. Give him your sin. Admit that you need him. Rest your full weight on him. Hold nothing back. Collapse into his trustworthy arms. You will be united with him, not just in suffering, but in his resurrection as well. Secondly, come for, so come to Jesus. But secondly, if you're here and you, you trust Christ, let him lead you into new deaths this week. See that verse in, in, uh, in verse 12. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Parkview Church, this is the way that our church will grow. This is the way that the world will be transformed. This is the way that anything good really has ever happened in the universe. Is that people, normal people like you and me, who wake up in the morning and drink coffee and do the dishes and all that normal stuff, have taken that seriously. They have let death work in us so that life might might work in others. Would you have the courage to do that this week? What death is Christ calling you to, 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 to give yourself to this week? Is it death to people's opinion of you? Is it death to some of your pleasures? Is it death to some of your comforts? Is it death to your pride? Notice the principle that Paul lays out there. Death at work in us, life in you. The world will come what, become what it ought to be. Our city will become what it ought to be to the degree that we absorb this message and God's spirit works through us. So let's live courageously today. God will lead us only into the deaths that can never really hurt us. For the sake of Jesus, for the promise of his resurrection. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are kind and you are near. We can come to you today in suffering and grief and you're not afraid of it. You've conquered it. You've conquered death so thoroughly that we can laugh in its face by giving ourselves to it. Lord, on the cross, you, you did just that. You said, I'll give myself over to death because I've, I know the secret. Death doesn't have the final word. Put that kind of nuclear-powered courage into our hearts this week. And if you're here and you don't know this way of dealing with suffering, this way of Christ, this way of, it seems impossible, doesn't it, to give yourself over to suffering to give yourself over into the, the most meaningful death, which is to give your life to Jesus. You might pray with me like this. Heavenly Father, I see I've spent a thousand ways avoiding this suffering, but what I really need most is you. Come to you. I come to you. Receive me. Make your home with me. Help me to love you. Help me to obey you. Take my sin and give me new life. Amen.